I wouldn't judge a book by its cover, but I might judge it by its title. I like clever and succinct titles. Here's one by Ed Welch, and I've been reading this. It's called, When People Are Big and God is Small. When people are big and God is small. And I think it captures the struggle of our faith very well. Maybe you agree with me. And I'll just share a few thoughts from it for now. The author has a simple advice for those who struggle with the fear of man. Learn the fear of the Lord. Simple as that. Of course, there's some practical suggestions. Quote, the key to learning the fear of the Lord is to stay in Scripture. When you are in the Scripture, pray that God will teach you that He is the Holy One. Review the creation Psalms, like Psalm 8. Memorize Psalm 139. Begin a fear of the Lord or knowing God prayer group. Take time to confess your fear of people and lack of fear of the Lord. If we follow this advice and if we study the Bible, we see how real it is about who God is. His greatness, holiness is also brutally honest about our shortcomings and weaknesses. Even men of faith like Abraham, David, and Paul were given inside scoop of their dark pasts and shameful mistakes. But the scriptures also point us to the gracious promises of Christ. I think Peter is a prime example of someone who went from fearing man to fearing God, from rock bottom in the pits to the rock that is higher than him. So we'll look at his story in Luke 22. As you make your way there, I'll remind you of where we are in the Gospels. It's Thursday of the Passion Week. Much of it is narrated in Luke 22. During the day, Jesus dispatched Peter and John into the city to prepare the Passover meal. At evening, Christ taught many lessons over dinner and afterwards. But as you know, the day doesn't end with everyone comfortably tucked in bed, waking up refreshed next morning. That night, as Judas Iscariot went to betray Jesus and gather up a mob to arrest him, the rest departed for the Garden of Gethsemane, and there our Lord prayed and prepared for the suffering ahead of him. It's probably close to midnight when they met the betrayer and the authorities. And the first instinct of the eleven was to put up a fight, but when that wasn't allowed, they took flight. As he just gave himself up to his enemies, Matthew and Mark reports, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Each and every one of them stumbled in faith. But after everyone's cowardice and failure, Peter makes some effort to get back into the action. So let's read what happens next in Luke 22, 54 to 65. You'll see that if you're using the Pew Bible page 740. Luke 22, 54 to 65. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. 
And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Before I get to the details here, I want to discuss three background matters. Time of the events, the arrangement of the events, and the structure of the passage here. Now first, concerning the time of Peter's downfall, Mark helps most in establishing a frame. Uh, There's a passage in Mark 13 that gives us a major clue. And while teaching about the end times, Christ uses an illustration of a servant diligent and vigilantly waiting for the master to return, even in the middle of the night. And I'll read Mark 13, verses 32 to 37 for context. So just follow along or listen. Mark 13, 32 to 37. And I'll connect this with today's passage in a moment. But of that day, an hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly, he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. And go back to that second half of verse 35. In it, there are four time markers. Evening, midnight, crowing of the rooster, and morning. The Lord's outlining here four divisions or watches of the night according to Roman custom. The first watch would last from about 6 to 9 p.m., second watch from 9 to 12-ish, the third from 12 to 3, and the fourth from 3 to 6. The time period from midnight to about 3 a.m. was when the rooster would crow. And it turns out the rooster crows multiple times. The fowl would crow once between 12 to 1 a.m., though not very loudly. People didn't care so much about this crowing. And that's when Peter's first denial happened, according to Mark 14, 68. And then the second crowing, much louder and relevant to our story, took place around 3 a.m. Now, all this to say, Peter's three denials were between midnight and 3 a.m., when the rooster typically crowed a few times. That's why before midnight, Jesus had warned Peter in advance in Mark 14, 30. Surely I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, 
you will deny me three times. Now let's talk about the arrangement of the events. I'll remind you that the gospel writers sometimes differ in the way they tell one and the same story. That doesn't mean all or any of them were wrong. Actually, it gives me more confidence in God's word as it preserves the unique personalities and tastes of its human writers. With that in mind, we see all four gospel writers narrate the story of Peter's greatest failure. All four start with Peter getting access into the courtyard of the high priest, then trying to blend in with the crowd. All four report that Peter denied Jesus three times. Now for some differences, while narrating, Matthew, Mark, and John go back and forth between two scenes. One moment we're with Peter at the courtyard. Next moment we see Jesus on trial. Matthew and Mark brings us inside the house before all of Peter's denials, while John brings us inside after his first denial. But then the camera moves back out to the courtyard again. Luke, however, decides to focus on Peter, keep the camera on him, you want to use that illustration, and narrate his three denials all at once before turning our full attention to Jesus. And because that's the way he proceeds, that's how we'll proceed too. So that means we'll focus more on the trials of Jesus next time, Lord willing. Now one more background topic concerning the structure of today's passage. And this one's fairly easy to explain. If we start with verse 61, we expect to see three denials in the preceding verses. And that's what we get. The first denials narrated in verses 54 to 57, the second in verse 58, third and final in verses 59 to 60. I'm going to treat those three to, together and note the escalating pressure that's put on Peter. After those denials, we observe Peter at his lowest point, absolute lowest point in verses 61 to 62. And it's all the more disgraceful because he was so sure just a few hours ago in verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But now Jesus will be by himself. And we see in verses 63 to 65 how he's left to suffer alone. So from these three parts, we have three steps for dealing with our failures. Failures in our faith. One, admit that our faith is weak. Our faith is weak. Admit that our faith is weak. That's verses 54 to 60. Two, acknowledge how our disloyalty hurts Christ. Acknowledge how our disloyalty hurts Christ. That's 61 to 62. Three, accept that Jesus must suffer for our sins. Accept that Jesus must suffer for our sins. That's 63 to 65. First, Admit that our faith is weak. Let's see how Peter learned this lesson the hardest way possible. As Matthew, Mark, and Luke retell the story, 
they distinguished Peter from others? Surely he, sure, he initially stumbled like the rest, but he bounced back. He got a grip on himself. Somehow he relocated the arresting mob and followed them, even if it was at a distance. They were headed back to Jerusalem to the high priest's home. Now, archaeologists like Lean Rittmeyer make a good guess from their findings that it's a place they call the Palatial Mansion. The name's appropriate. It's, it's a 6,500 square feet, two-story building. It stood out in its size and magnificence. It was built on a slope. Upon entry, one had to descend some steps to reach the central courtyard. Rittmeyer notes that there's a corner spot in the yard from where you can look into the reception room where Jesus was tried. That spot is most likely where Jesus turned to look at Peter in verse 61. But before all that happens, Peter had to gain access first. But how? The Gospel of John gives us an answer. It says in chapter 18, verse 15 to 16, that Peter got help. Already inside was another disciple known to the high priest. Many believe this is none other than John himself. Perhaps his family had some business connections with the Jerusalem authorities. Whether it was John or not, this disciple talked with the maid doorkeeper and got Peter in. Once he got in, Peter tried to blend in, not stand out. But the servant girl who kept the door already got a close look at him. Then later, as his face was visible in the glow of the fire, she looked intently at him, and she gets her confirmation. Peter denies any association with Jesus, and that's the first denial. Clearly uncomfortable with eyes on him, the apostle ships locations out of the gateway and onto the porch. Some time passes, or as Luke says, after a little while in verse 58, the servant girl from earlier must have asked around about Peter's identity, first to another maid and then those standing by. Peter notices, notices the whispering and pointing. Again, he denies any association with Jesus, but this time he denies with an oath according to Matthew. Also, unlike the previous denial, he mainly addresses a man, though others were there and heard his denial. The second denial is complete. Finally, about another hour passes as verse 59 reports. Now the body of evidence is stacking up. The data is trickling in. Peter, the spy, has been made. Just around 3 a.m., one confidently affirmed that he's one of Jesus' followers. Talking too much, and his Galilean accent gives him away. Others also catch on. Besides the accent, the other huge clue is found in John 18, 26, and I'll read it for you. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Now, there's even a possible witness of his foolish violence from earlier. Peter panics. He begins to curse and swear. You 
can imagine the expletives and the gospel writers spare us of the details. Probably sounded like Yosemite Sam, but the essence of it is, man, I do not know what you're saying. I do not know the man. Third denial complete. It was immediately after this denial that the rooster crowed loud and clear. The day is approaching, but Peter would sink into the darkest moments of his life. Now, before we look at verses 61 to 62, let's review how Peter got zero out of three in his exam. The three temptations went progressively from easy to medium to hard in the levels of difficulty. The the first problem was easy. There should be no trouble being bold in faith before a maidservant. The second problem was a bit harder with intel coming in. The third problem was the most difficult. And there's no hope of getting number three right when Peter couldn't even handle number one. He got an F, thinking he got an he would get an A+. He thought he was hot stuff, but he went cold, both physically and spiritually. It's easy to read this and shake our heads and be like, Peter, Peter, Peter. Listen back in verse 32. Realize he's not invincible. But we also need the same lesson. We must admit that our faith is weak. Now, I'm not discounting all the strides you made already as a Christian, walking with the Lord for decades, accumulating your faith victories. But on this side of eternity, we do stumble from time to time. There is room for growth in our faith, and it should grow continually. So what do we do then when once we've fallen on our faces? For Peter to get back on his feet, the solution wasn't going to be try harder, hire a public speaking coach, take a class of manliness, manage your social anxiety. What is the solution? That leads us to verses 61 to 62. Second step for dealing with our failures. Acknowledge how our disloyalty hurts Christ. Again, now there's no denying that Peter denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but thrice. He failed miserably. There's no curb to bring him up to a passing grade. So he only deserves to be kicked to the curb. We'd completely understand Jesus if he never trusts Peter again. Remember what was said back in chapter 12, 8 through 9. I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man, also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Thankfully, Jesus knew this was coming. And he had a plan to restore Peter. And you turn back to verses 31 to 32. Same chapter here, Luke 22, where the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. The devil has already wreaked havoc on Peter. 
If it wasn't for the prayer of Jesus, Peter would have no chance. But we see in the middle of verse 32, after the semicolon, what he must do. It says, and when you have returned to me. There it is. Peter must return to Jesus at all costs. That path to return begins with acknowledging how his disloyalty hurt Christ. Luke alone tells us that just before Peter's eyes welled up in tears, those eyes met the eyes of Jesus. In verse 61 we read, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. It must have been a look filled with deep hurt, disappointment, and loneliness. These denials of Peter must have pained him more than the betrayal of Judas. After all, Peter wasn't just a face in the crowd or even just one of the disciples. He was a close friend. Just as we know personally, Jesus knows that those closest to us can hurt us most deeply. I think about times when my wife, Ire, and I get into an argument, and I tend to focus on words and contents. That's good, but I can fail to look at her facial expressions, right? All the frustrations, the pain, and the disappointment written on it. I don't know if the men relate with me on this, but... Being a godly spouse not only requires the knowledge of the word and reading its pages, right? I got to acknowledge... We have to acknowledge our spouses and read their faces. And even more important than marriage, we need, to, we need the knowledge and we need to acknowledge. Christianity is a relationship with Christ. We must look into his face. Try this next time you read the Gospels. I think of that centurion incident. You know, can you see his delight when he marveled at the great faith of the centurion in Matthew 8 and Luke 7? Can you picture his righteous anger at the hardness of hearts in Mark 3? And there is in today's passage the hurt in his expression. Acknowledge how our disloyalty hurts Christ. And we can go further and think about the other persons in the Trinity. Our sins grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Our sins provoke our Father to anger and loving discipline. I believe at this precise moment, Peter knew he messed up and hurt Jesus. So he wept. Wept bitterly. And in retrospect, he exhibited what Paul calls godly sorrow which produces repentance leading to salvation. And that's in 2 Corinthians 7, if you want to look it up. But Meanwhile, I'll say Judas Iscariot was grieved with the sorrow of the world, which produces death. It goes without saying, we want to be like Peter, not Judas, when we are in sorrow. So if we consider salvation as the goal of repentance, We must think about the Savior. That leads to the third step in dealing with our failures. Accept that Jesus must suffer for our sins.
story of Peter does not end here because the story of Jesus continues. In verses 63 to 65, Luke narrates this brutal mistreatment and abuse. You see in these verses, grammatically speaking, our Lord is the object of assault and ridicule. They mocked him, beat him, blindfolded him, struck him on the face, asked him a sarcastic question, blasphemously spoke against him. Matthew and Mark add that they even spat in his face. Yet Jesus does not retort or respond in kind. As Peter would write later in 1 Peter 2.13, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he did commit himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus had to endure all this pain to save us. Peter and the other disciples would realize this over time. They learned to accept that Jesus must suffer for our sins. The hard lesson to learn. Remember back in Matthew 16, 21 to 22, when Jesus predicted that he'd suffer in Jerusalem. And Peter protested. It says in verse 22, Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Jesus rebuked him in return. At that time, Peter was mindful of the things of men, not the things of God. But now, after his humiliation, he can turn the page, move on to the next lesson. He can move from the sorrow of the night to the joy of salvation. Peter can enjoy a happy ending because Christ became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Once Peter stopped playing hero and realized he's a failure, he can step out of the spotlight, and step aside for the real hero. It's Christ. It's Christ who prayed for Peter's restoration. It's Christ who went to the cross for our salvation. How will your story end? To help with that question, I want to consider three application points. First, know that you can do better than Judas Iscariot, but you cannot do better than Simon Peter. Here's what I mean. Please don't end up like Judas. He was remorseful for betraying innocent blood, but he did not repent. There's a gap between Peter and Judas, a gap as wide as heaven and hell. You can do better than Judas. You must do better than Judas. But also realize that if we were in Peter's shoes, we would have failed, just as he did. Peter thought he was better than others. He once said, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. But he was wrong. We'd be wrong too if we think we would never stumble. You cannot do better than Peter. So then, like him, we should weep over our sinful weaknesses. As Isaiah 3.8 reminds us, people stumble and fall because our tongue and our doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. Perhaps someone listening here or later has lived as a fake Christian 
leading a double life? Maybe you've been pledging loyalty to Jesus one moment, denying him the next. It's possible you lied to others about your relationship with Jesus. And scarier than that, you even lied to yourself about your relationship with Jesus. For that, we deserve nothing but God's wrath. But our Lord Jesus, fully God and fully man, holy and righteous, went to the cross to pay the penalty for our denials, our mistakes, our failures. He died, rose again the third day, and ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. I urge you now to repent, turn from sin, and place your hope of heaven in Jesus. You're never going to be good enough for heaven on your own, in your strength, in your flesh. As we sang earlier, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Now turning to Christians, as you live for him, I'm going to talk about two applications, two more, make it three. And it'll help to picture a root and its fruit. Let me ask the believers here, young and old, men and women, what is the root of Peter's failure? Clue? I talked about it at the beginning of the sermon. It's found all throughout the Bible. It's what caused Abraham to lie about his relationship to his wife and his son Isaac to do the same with his wife. It ruined the first generation of Israel who came out of Egypt. It derailed King Saul's career. The fear of man. Ask you to meditate on Proverbs 29, 25 this week. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. The fear of man is what tripped up Peter and others that night. It got Peter again, along with the other apostles later in Antioch. We read about that in Galatians 2. It can catch us too. It might prevent us from warning a friend who's straying from the faith or caught in some ensnaring sin. It might paralyze us when our conscience pricks us to share the gospel with the lost. Once we root ourselves in God's word and learn to fear him above all, there will be some fruit, especially in our speech. We'll be like Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Motivated by healthy reverence for Christ, we can follow 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Of course, we won't always be fruitful. James 3, 2 reminds us, we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Again, we are sinners saved by grace, far from perfect, not until glory. This is when we must remember the promises of the gospel once again. Hope the final song helps you in that regard. 
Sometimes we act the part of Christ's friends through fear his cause disowning. But we look to him again. Though we're deceitful and unfaithful in our words, he is the true and faithful word. We'll stumble into our pits and valleys of shame. But here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we were once darkness. Now we walk in the light of your countenance. Those you save are your delight, precious in your holy sight. You have shown in our hearts to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We look upon that face. We praise you that you and your son delight in us. Lord, we resolve to admit our weaknesses, rely on you, trust in you, to live for your glory, to speak boldly the gospel and praises of you. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.